0: Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Only, excuse me, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. Let me pray for us as we look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we know that these are your words, that you have authored them, and we need you to be their teacher and their applier tonight by your Holy Spirit. So would would you be here and do that? Would you cause any distraction to pass away? Whether distractions from outside of us or whether it's just distractions inside of us, our own hearts or minds, would you give us the, the ability to hear what you have for us? And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you watch the Super Bowl on Sunday, or really if you've watched any football game uh, ever in some sense, you know that basically a team has to go into that football game uh, with some sort of game plan to face the, the opposition. They know they're gonna face an opponent, that opponent is gonna come at them hard, and so they make some sort of game plan to deal with that. Right, if you saw the Super Bowl, Denver knew that their opponent had uh, the best offense in the NFL this year, and they were, gonna, they were gonna bring it. And so they had to come up with a good game plan to, to face their opponent. And so basically they looked and said, all right, well, we're gonna be conservative on offense, conservatives, nice way to say it, we're going to you know, protect the ball, no turnovers, that sort of thing, and on defense, we're going to go hard at their quarterback, we're going to try to disrupt them as much as possible, that sort of stuff, and it ended up working out well for Denver. So they faced the faced serious opposition, but they really, they did it well. They responded well. And now, strange as it might sound, I think that's really what Paul's dealing with in this passage, so, you know, if you've been with us at this semester, we're studying through Philippians, which is a, it's a book, it's really a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi, and it's a letter that's filled with joy. It's all about Paul communicating the joy that he, that he experiences in Christ. And he's experiencing that in the midst of some pretty tough times, right? He's writing this from prison. And so our theme this semester is that we're, we're seeing real joy in the midst of real life. And so here tonight, Paul, and of course ultimately inspired by God, tells us about he talks to us about facing opposition as Christians. If you're a believer, you are going to face opposition from the world. It's going to happen. So how do you deal with it? How do we, how do we respond to it? What's the game plan, so to speak? And that's what Paul tells us here. And even though the word for joy, which shows up in almost every passage that we're going to look at, it doesn't show up specifically in this one, I still think uh, the the concept is there that we can even begin to find some joy even in experiencing opposition to the faith. So I want to look at four things tonight. Um, First, we're going to look sort of generally, number one, what's the general game plan Secondly, we'll look at, we'll sort of narrow the scope and look at the specifics of that plan. Third, we'll look at the results of that plan. And fourth, the reason behind the plan. All right, so first, the general game plan. You see it there in verse 27. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now, look, this is probably the, this is really the theme sentence. For this passage, and then the entirety of chapter two. Okay, so in the macro, sort of the, the, the wide scale, right? He's saying he's answering the question. So now, what? How, how do we live as Christians? And he says, live uh, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But more specifically, sort of narrowly, for what we're talking about tonight, it's it's the same idea. How do we live facing opposition from the world? And Paul says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And now actually, in some of your, uh, if, you have, if you're looking at your Bible, it might have a footnote. A, a literal reading of that would actually be something like, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And I don't really know why we translate it differently, but some of them do. So what does it mean? Why does he tell these Philippians, live as citizens Worthy of the gospel. Well what you need to know is that Philippi is sort of a uh, sort of a unique city. So it's in Macedonia, which is about 600 miles or so from Italy, from Rome. So it's not on Italian soil, but it's actually a Roman colony. And its citizens have uh, they're Roman citizens. And now that came with some pretty significant privileges. Some tax benefits, Uh, you were under Roman law, which apparently was better for various reasons. So in other words, it was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. And here these Philippians are, are nowhere near Rome, really, and yet they have that privilege. So all that goes to say that they were very proud of their city, very proud of their citizenship. It's a big deal to them. And so, you can, so maybe you can begin to see what Paul's doing. He, he's playing on that concept of, of being a citizen and applying it to, to the gospel or to the kingdom of God. Right? Just like these folks know, like you're proud of your city. You know what it's like. You know what it means to live as a citizen worthy of Philippi. Right? We can think about it like Baylor. You live as a citizen, so to speak, of Baylor. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that you, generally speaking, you, you you follow Baylor's rules. You you love Baylor. You want to see Baylor succeed. You want to represent it well. You want to promote it. You're for it. You abide by your professor's syllabus. Uh, and, and the flip side of that, right? It it wouldn't make sense if you're a uh, if you're a Baylor citizen, so to speak. It means you don't. You don't cheer for TCU or Oklahoma or your opponent. You cheer for your team. You abide by its customs and its rules. And so Paul's basically taking that same concept. You know what it's like, how big of a deal your citizenship is and how proud you are of it. And you actually live in light of that fact. He's saying, remember. Remember that first and foremost, you're a citizen, not of Philippi or of Baylor, You're a citizen, if you're a believer, of the gospel. Or as he's going to say later in Philippians, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So live as a citizen primarily of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like to live out your life as a believer. He's basically saying remember who you are and live like it. If you're a believer, then you belong to the gospel. And therefore, you're, that means that you're gonna, you and I are going to want to represent it well. We're going to promote it. That's what we want to see do well. We're going to live according to its laws. We're going to submit to its king. All right, so what does that mean for us? A couple of applications. Obviously, we could take those, what we just said, and, and pull those out for a while. but I want to give you two quick thoughts. First, the first thought is this. That living as a... If you're a believer and you live out, live that out, live as a citizen of that gospel, of the kingdom, I want you to see that that's actually what causes the opposition. It's living out as, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what causes the world, the, the opposition from the world that you that you will get. Right? It makes sense. If you take... If you take one citizenry kingdom, I don't even know if citizenry is a word, I think it is, and you put it right in the midst of another one, there's going to be problems, right? You may not know this, but TCU actually used to be in Waco, like in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was in Waco, and then it moved because it burned down. There was a fire... Officially, by officially, I mean Wikipedia says of unknown origins. You can draw your own conclusions. I don't know. But if you take one kingdom that operates one way and you put it right in the middle of another one, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be problem. And so what I want you to know and see is that if you are a believer, you will experience the opposition of the world. The world, so to speak, now it doesn't mean creation, right? The world in the sense of, of uh, sin, death, Satan, the, the flesh, right? The world hates the kingdom of God. And it opposes it violently. And it might look like outright persecution. Or it might, look, uh, it might be more subtle. The ways in which the, the ethics of the world press in on you. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But don't be surprised by it. If you're a believer, opposition will come. And the second thought that I want you to keep in mind is this. That this is the game plan. Right? Paul's telling us, how are we going to deal with this opposition that we're facing? The very thing that causes it, it is the game plan. Paul says, the fact that you live in the midst of this world is going to bring opposition. And so what you need to do is live in the midst of this world. Live as a citizen of the kingdom. Live it out. Stay the course. Live faithfully right in the midst of the world. So look, what does that mean? You can talk about that in community groups, right? Because you could go on for a long time. But it means you live out the ethics of the kingdom. Which means what? It means that you want to see the gospel advance to people that don't have it. That would be the opposers, the enemy, so to speak. It means that you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to love and serve other people, show grace and mercy to other people. And it means that you're going to bear with suffering. All right, so we see the general game plan. Now I want you to see, second point, I want you to see Paul sort of narrows down and begins to give us some specifics of what that's going to look like to live out the gospel, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. You see in verse 27 into 28 a little bit. He says he wants to see believers standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? Seems like Paul's making a point, and I think it's this. I think it's pretty obvious. Paul says to face opposition well, you have got to be unified. One spirit, one mind, side by side. He's speaking to Christians, to a church, and he's saying you have got to be together. In other words, opposition is going to come and you need to live as citizens. And what does that look like specifically? It's going to look like y'all together. In other words, to face opposition, you need each other. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. You have to have people that are on the same page, on the same team with you. That's how you face opposition. Can't do it by yourself. Look, there has to be a better illustration than this, but I couldn't come up with one. I want you to imagine that you go to your first class tomorrow, and for some reason... Every single other student at Baylor has lost their mind and has decided to skip class for the rest of the semester. Every single student, except you. They know they're going to fail, and it does not bother them. All your friends, everybody, they do whatever they want, they're, they're going to play all day, every day, from here on out for the rest of the semester. But you think that's crazy? They think you're crazy, and so you go to class. Your professors are there, teaching. And I know, it's kind of strange, but so your friends are called, you're heading off to class and your friends are saying, we're going to Austin for like the whole week. Come hang out with us. <laughs> we're we're going to go, you know, Eno or like hang out at Common Grounds or whatever it is you want to do. Come hang out with us. Why are you still going to class? You're the only one going to class. I want, you, how long do you think you could Last. Right, you still think, I, I need to graduate, I want to do well. Why? I've got to do this. How long would you last? Maybe two days, maybe a week of going to classes by yourself every day while all your friends never work, they don't study. How long would you last? All right, but think about if we change the scenario just a little bit. What if it was every Baylor student except the people in your class so the 30, 40, 50, 100, you know, however many in your class, each class, they're still like-minded. They still think, like, I don't know what the other, you know, 14,000 people are doing, but, <laughs> but we're going to stick it out, right? How close do you think you would get to those people? Really close, right? Yeah. And you very well might make it to the end of the semester, even though your, you know, your friends are saying like, no, come with us, we're going to do this. You know, you're crazy for going to class because you have somebody with you. You need those people. You, You would lean on each other to remind each other, look, we're not crazy. This is real and this is true. We have to go to class. We have to study and we need to make good grades so that we can pass. Now look, maybe that's a silly illustration, but I think it might begin to help us at least feel what Paul's saying. That if you're a believer, you're going to face opposition. The world is going to oppose you in some form or fashion. And you've got to have other people around you that you can lean on. Other like-minded people that can come alongside you and remind you of the truth. Right, we call it Christian community. It's, what, it's the church, Right? It's not just a good idea, it's necessary. Because as you face opposition, it's going to make you feel, it's going to tend to make you feel isolated. And it's going to be disorienting. And so you've got to have other people there that are like-minded, like-spirited. All right, so look, let's flesh that out. What might it look like? This, I think, is Paul's kind of main point here. We're going to spend the longest here, so don't, you know, if you're doing the math, and he's got four points. It's going to take too long. We'll be all right. What might it look like? Right, it might look like in your life that you, actually, you face actual persecution from other people. That's, you know seems to be what these Philippians and certainly what Paul's facing. Maybe it's here at Baylor. Maybe in your fraternity or sorority or in your department or you know, whatever it is. Maybe basically you're the only Christian or one of the few Christians. Maybe that's the scenario. Uh, or, or maybe when you get done with school, maybe you are the only Christian in your firm or in your office. And people don't like, people don't like your views. People don't like the fact that you're not willing to, to bend that rule that everyone else in the office bends for the betterment of the office because you don't believe it's right, because you live out of a different ethic. And they hate you for it, or maybe they hate your arrogant—arrogant—that's in quotes—beliefs that uh, that Christianity really is the ultimate truth. That you really do feel like you found truth with a capital T, right? If that's the case, you've got to have people around you that remind you and encourage you in the truth that you're not crazy. That living out of the kingdom ethic really is worth it. That Jesus loves you. And he doesn't love you because of what you've done for him. He just loves you for free. To remind you of grace. To encourage you, pray for you. And so that you can do it for others. Right, but it also might look like this. And maybe more, um, more commonly, at least here in our context, it might look like this. It might look like when the world, when the world opposes you by just pressing in on you with its ethic. With with the way it thinks about things, so to speak. For example, when the world tells you through various media that, especially if you're if you're a female, that what makes you valuable is how physically attractive you are. When the world opposes what you think, what the Bible tells you about what makes you an attractive person, which is what Jesus Christ thinks about you. The fact that Jesus loves you and finds you beautiful and is making you beautiful and declares you to be righteous, that's what makes you beautiful. But the world is going to oppose that and say, no, you're wrong. It's how physically attractive you are. And if you look like this, you've got to have people around you that remind you of the truth. Or maybe the world opposes you by, by by pressing in a little bit and telling you that what you're worth is how much you make or how much you can produce. you got to have like-minded, like-spirited people around you. I think it's easy to see along the lines of sexuality. Maybe you feel the world pressing in on you, opposing you and telling you that... right It opposes your sexual ethic if you're a believer. And it says, look, sex is not... Sex is for you. It's purely for your enjoyment. And you should use it however you want to. Whatever that looks like for you, you should do it. You need to have people around you. It tells you that pornography is normal, maybe even healthy. You need like-minded people around you. Or maybe you're a believer that struggles with same-sex attraction. And the world opposes you for even the fact that you, that you find some sort of struggle there. And the world tells you, opposes your view, and says, says on the one hand, look, your sexual identity is your identity. Who you are sexually, it's everything about you. And so don't struggle with it, embrace it. You need like-minded people around you that can look at you and remind you of the truth and remind you of the beautiful truth that you are not, whether it's same-sex attraction, whatever your sexual struggle is, that you are not ultimately defined by your sexuality. That what defines you is Jesus Christ and the fact that He gives you His righteousness. That's your identity. We've got to have people around us that remind us of that, that encourage us in that. And we've got to have people around us that look at us and can say in our struggles, whatever it is, yeah, me too. That can identify with us, like-minded, like-spirited, and say, yes, me too. And point us to Jesus. And look, that's what the church is, and we want RUF. RUF is an extension, an arm of that of that kind of community, a place where you're surrounded by those kinds of people, we hope. Uh, yeah. All right, so we got to keep moving. So we've seen Paul's general plan for facing opposition. We've seen that he calls us to be unified, sort of what that looks like. Thirdly, I want you to see what I've called the result of that plan. It's really sort of the next, the next outworking, the next specifics of it. Verse 28, Paul says that if we live as citizens of the gospel we'll be unified. We have to be. And if we're unified, he says, we'll be unafraid. The result of being unified with other believers and facing this oppression is that we'll be unafraid. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. So how does that happen? Well, it happens basically by what we just talked about. It happens as we together remind ourselves and we remind each other of what is really true. That we remind ourselves of real reality, the, the, the truth of the kingdom, that God has showed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that the king has come and he will come again, and that he has already won, that whatever opposition we face, it's in, in some sense, some sense, it's not real. Yes, it's, it's, it's real opposition, but it can't win. It can't ultimately defeat us. And as we're able to see through to real reality, we're able to... Right, we look at the world and it seems like the world can destroy us. It can ruin us. It can you know harm us, bring us down. But as we remind each other of, and, and dwell on the truth, as we read it and preach it and teach it and sing it and pray it into our hearts... That what's really true is Jesus has won and defeated all of this. Right? We see through to the truth that this can't ultimately destroy us. It's kind of like, I I thought about it like, sort of like one of those movies, uh, like The Matrix, maybe Inception. And I feel like there's another couple that are out there that I just couldn't quite get my fingers on. But you know the kind of movie where basically the idea is that they're in some sort of... um, Dream world, other experience like the Matrix. Like, have we seen the Matrix? I know it's kind of old, but right? right so you've seen the Matrix. Where, where they experience what seems to be reality, everything that they're experiencing seems to be real, but they know it's not. And they have to constantly remind themselves, as vivid as this is, it's not real. Right? There's a sense in which that's what I think Paul's telling us. Right? That's how we're unafraid, as we remind ourselves of the truth. And look, hear me say, That that doesn't mean that the suffering we face is not real. It's not real, don't worry about it. Yes, it's it's very real. And it can be very painful. But what we are saying is that there, we can be unafraid when we see that there's actually a deeper reality behind it. And really that's what the text says as a result of all this. Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We don't have time to get into it, but look, actually the sense is, it's not that it's a sign to them, right, so that them, they can see it, right? I think the Greek, if you get into it, uh, it's really basically, it's a sign for us. In respect to them, it's a sign of their destruction and, and of our salvation, if that makes sense. So in other words, as we are unafraid, as we remind ourselves of the truth, we're more unafraid, and it cycles on itself. And the result of that is basically that God grows us and strengthens us to see the true, the true end of things. That this world is going to... The evil of this world is ultimately going to end in destruction. And that your salvation is safe and secure in Christ. It's this ever upward spiral of growth and encouragement. That's the result. So fourthly and finally... It's probably a bad title at this point, but I want to look at the reason behind the plan. So basically in, in verse 29, God gives us a little bit of why we experience suffering, the suffering of opposition from the world. Right? We don't get answers to all the why questions of life, but Paul, God through Paul here does give us a little glimpse here. And he wants us to know that it's sort of as part of our game plan, how we face the opposition in the world, he wants us to know, and it sounds really strange, that that opposition you're facing, it's a gift from God. Just like your faith is a gift from God. Okay. Now, how in the world can that be a gift, right? That just sounds crazy. If it's a gift, it's, it's kind of like the gift of singleness, right? The one nobody wants. Like, no, thank you. Rather not have that kind of gift. So, how can suffering, the opposition of the world, be a gift? I want you to listen to uh, a man named William Hendrickson. Two sentences from him. He said it really well. He says, Because it brings Christ nearer to the soul of the Christian. In his suffering for Christ's sake, the believer begins to understand the one who suffered redemptively for him and receives the sweetness of his enduring fellowship. You see what he's saying? That it's a, it's a gift from God because it connects us to Jesus. It puts us in closer touch to the one who saved us because he saved us by suffering opposition for us. And so he gives us this good gift of being able to identify with his experience. Because as we identify with his experience, we get to know him better. Because his, his experience, his suffering, is, it's so intimately tied with just who he is. Right? If you think about it, it makes sense. Uh, if you, when you start dating somebody new, and you want to get to know the so somebody you care about and you want to get to know them better, you do things that are important to them right? You want to have, you want to enter into their life and then have experiences, things that mean a lot to them. Like when uh, loose, you know, this kind of connects. When Amy and I started dating, Amy's a runner. Her family runs and they're really good at it. And so it's a big deal. It's in a sense, it's a big part of who she is. And so we start dating like, man, I didn't grow up running unless I was chasing a ball or something. And so I want to, is I want to get to know Amy and kind of know who she is, I want to experience that. See what what this is all about. Because in a sense, it helps me to understand her better. So Jesus brings us in to know him better by experiencing a little bit of what he experienced. And the more we see what he experienced, the more we fall in love with him. And the more we're able to face opposition unafraid and even begin to love our enemies. Let me end with this thought. Church history, oddly enough, is filled with people that have faced significant opposition from the world, even unto the point of death. And there's so many stories of of men and women that have faced such serious opposition even unto death, and they have done so with amazing poise. They have gone to their death... uh, Yeah... Very poised, singing hymns. I read about uh, John Huss, who was he was going to be burned alive, and as the executioner chained his neck to the pole, right to keep him in place, right before they packed wood and straw around him up to his chin. This is in the 1400s, I believe. As he chained his neck to the pole so that they could burn him alive, he said that he, he told the, the executioner that he gladly accepted the chain for Christ's sake. And then they piled wooden straw up around him, up to his chin, and they lit it on fire. And as he died, he said, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me over and over and over. How can somebody do that? And there's all kinds of stories like that. And I want you to think about this. Because how can they do that? And the reason is this, because in some sense, they knew that Jesus, Jesus did not face death with that kind of poise. Now look, I'm not saying Jesus faced death in some way imperfectly. Of course not. He faced it perfectly. But he was very... Like, that's not his story, necessarily. In some ways, it is. But he was overwhelmed by the prospect of death, right? So overwhelmed that he somehow sweat, sweated drops of blood came out of his forehead. That he prayed to God and asked if there's any other way to do this. He was overwhelmed by it. And the reason is because he was facing ultimate opposition. He was facing the ultimate opposition of God's wrath. And He was doing it for you. And for those men and women that have gone to their death with such poise, they're able to do so because they they could look and see He did it. He He took true opposition for me and I will never have to. That opposition cannot Touch me. And as they get in touch with that, they're able more and more to look face that opposition and connect with their Lord and Savior. And now look, I'm just going to end with this thought. The point is not, so, you know, do you love Jesus that much? Do you love Jesus so much that you could go to your death and sing a hymn? Right? It's not be like John Huss and be strong. I'm sure we should be strong. But the point is is not to look to them, but to look look to the one that they looked to, to the one that has taken your opposition for you and defeated it, swallowed it, so that it doesn't oppose you ultimately anymore. And that's the good news. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, that that is true is almost unbelievable. Jesus, thank you that you would come and you would... You would bear true opposition so that we can, when we face it in this world, it brings us closer to you. It doesn't drive us from God, but it brings us closer. Jesus, bear us up, and we ask it in your name. Amen.